I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Today, we're surrounded by technologies we don't understand. And to paraphrase Churchill, never before in human history have we depended so much on tools that we understand so poorly. Today, I'm talking to Professor Marcus de Sotoy about how we communicate science and why it's vital that we learn to do it better. Welcome to Future Imperfect. My name's Marcus de Sotoy. I'm a professor of mathematics at the University of Oxford. And I'm also uh, the Simone Professor for the Public Understanding of Science uh, at Oxford, a post I took over from uh, Richard Dawkins, the first holder of this chair. So I do mathematical research, but I also spend a lot of time trying to communicate the ideas of mathematics to the general public. And uh, one of the ways I do that is writing books. Uh, so I've just got a new book out called Thinking Better, The Art of the Shortcut, sort of celebrating uh, my subject of mathematics as kind of a fantastic suite of shortcuts that we've come up with over the kind of last 5,000 years to help us to kind of solve the problems we're faced with. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for that. Well, it was interesting because Richard Dawkins was my tutor when I did zoology. I at think Oxford. we overlapped, uh, in fact, because I did do a little Googling of you and uh, saw yes. that we were in Oxford around the same time. So interesting. Yes, in the in the 80s. Was it the early 80s when we were That's undergraduates? Right. I, I was a, a Wadamite. It was uh, Thatcher years, uh, you know, minor <laughs> strike, a very militant kind of socialist uh, student body at Wadham. Yeah, I'm not sure how, how I was at St. John's. And I'm not sure how militant St. John's was. We had a very cheap bar, if I remember. I, yeah, I, I don't think, think you were really... on the militant end of uh, <laughs> the politics at St. John's, frankly. No, exactly. So science communication is ever more important, I think, in our world of quick, convenient nuggets of misinformation in a lot of cases. And so how do you how do you sort of how do you start to approach that? Because Science in general is very complex. People could spend their whole lives studying an ever smaller piece of science. And um, Tom Kemp, I uh, don't know whether he's still at Oxford, but he taught me zoology. And he said the trouble with, with the things that I do is that you know more and more about less and less. 
until you know absolutely everything about absolutely nothing, which I thought was kind of an interesting thing to say. And he he studied the jawbones of mammal-like reptiles. And, and I just think that's awesomely detailed and minuscule piece of really important information. But you've got a bigger remit, haven't you? You've got to communicate big ideas in simple terms to a vast range of experiences and intellect. Yeah. yeah, this is the real challenge and the kind of joy of the position in a way, because, yeah, you're absolutely right. My mathematical research is is very focused on a kind of niche area of uh, kind of symmetry and prime numbers. Yet, you know, as a communicator, uh, you know, I'm, I'm being phoned up and being asked about a whole range of sciences. I mean, it's it's such a grand title. People kind of expect me to know the whole of science. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, I, I, I do have my limitations in kind of biology and zoology. I mean, that's an incredibly messy subject. I mean, it's yes. kind of why I went to mathematics, because, you know, there's a kind of simplicity about mathematics, I think. But why I think this position is really important, and I think Oxford were very far-sighted in the kind of mid-90s in setting up this chair, which was really the first of its kind, was the realisation that, as you say, science is having such a massive impact on society um, that you know people are having to make decisions politically and as a society about what they want their science to be doing for them. But if you don't understand the science, how can you make a decision about uh, genetically modified crops or uh, stem cell research or um, the impact of AI and machine learning on society. So I think uh, Oxford are very far-sighted in saying, okay, we need an ambassador. Basically, this world of science is like some huge, great superpower, which is having a massive impact on the future of the planet. You know, superpowers need ambassadors to try and communicate with with the other nations, as it were. Uh, and so I think, you know, I've always seen my role in this professorship as a kind of ambassador for the world of science. Now, the challenge, of course, is, I mean, actually, it's quite a kind of old fashioned title, uh, my one, because it's a bit top down, you know, like with the professor for the understanding of science. So it sounds very much like I have all the knowledge and I'm giving it to, to you via YouTube. So I think today, actually, the professorship would have been called something different to actually emphasise the role of a dialogue, you know, science and society. And the other professorships you've seen appear sort of around the country have that kind of name to it. You know, you can't really have a debate and a dialogue and, uh, unless you kind of really understand the science. And so I think there is a role really for giving people the tools to be able to, to then argue about what they want their position to be on particular scientific issues. And as you say, the challenge is, this is a very complex world science. I mean, look at my own subject of mathematics. It's really about learning um, this, this new language to be able to articulate ideas. And if you don't have that language, then it's very hard to uh, kind of understand all the subtleties. So some ways I think my job is a little bit like knowing what not to say. Right. Um, so that's really, you know, I, I could just roll on about all the complexities and details of a particular subject. But I think what I found is that when I'm trying to communicate these ideas, it's about throwing away everything which isn't important. And it's interesting because that actually relates to, in this book, I've talked about different shortcuts. And one of the really powerful shortcuts that I talk about is the the idea of getting a good diagram. And a good diagram is one that very often just throws away extraneous information that's just going to clutter your view and just pulling out the, the essential. So for example, I talk a bit, little bit about the diagram in nature for the structure of DNA. 
beautiful little spiral, uh, the double helix. Now, when uh, Crick and Watson first started trying to draw this, they, they added too many complex bits to it, trying to articulate all the extra stuff they knew about. And eventually, uh, Crick showed this diagram that they were cooking up uh, to his wife, uh, Odile, who was an artist. And she understood, well, what's, what's the major discovery here? It's about the fact that you've got these two um, helixes uh, which can pull apart. So that's what you want to show in your diagram. And it's in fact Odile who did the diagram for the Nature paper that, that Crick and Watson announced the discovery of the structure of DNA. And so that's a nice example of how you just want to get what's the essence of what I want to try and communicate. And mm. I tell you, I found that it's made me a better scientist quite often by having that challenge of trying to communicate complex ideas and understand what is the essential thing that's going on here. Um, because often my mind gets cluttered with all, all the detail. So I found the challenge of actually trying to communicate complex ideas to a public which perhaps doesn't have sophisticated background or language really helpful for me to understand the science as well. Mm. Well, one of the interesting things I've occasionally tried to do, I have a conversation with somebody who's perhaps not particularly well-versed in a subject, let's say. Um, it might, might be science, it might be biology, or it might be medieval history or something like that. And the weird phenomenon I find is they don't know how much they don't know. And part of the process of learning is to actually realise oh my goodness, I've got a lot to learn and I really don't actually know very much about yeah. it. And that's almost the beginning of enlightenment, the realisation that you actually don't know anything. Uh, and that, I think, is sometimes quite difficult for people's egos to accept. You know, the, the, the term ignorance brings with it all sorts of pejoratives. You know, if you call somebody ignorant, they take it offensively. And, and I understand why, because that word does have connotations of that. But maths, for me, I know there is such a vast amount of mathematics that I am ignorant of, yeah. and I would have to sort of learn layers of it because when you get to your level of maths, you're using shorthand to communicate ideas because you can't go right back to basics yeah. all the time. Yet your yeah. professorship, you have to almost reverse that entirely. That must be quite a switch for you sometimes. Yes, it is. And I think it's very interesting that layering because you're absolutely right. I mean, I often think about mathematics a bit like building a pyramid and, and each year I build on top or, or each generation, if you think about it. I mean, Newton was absolutely right that we're standing on the shoulders of giants when we make our next step. And I think especially in mathematics where the, the robustness of proof means that the things that were proved 2000 years ago by the ancient Greeks um, are as true today as when they were proved by Euclid and Pythagoras. And that isn't true so much in the other sciences because no. there's a much more evolutionary process of survival of the fittest theory but i do think that we should celebrate not knowing things in some yes. ways uh, i mean uh, you know that's actually what gets me out of bed in the morning to come here to my office to do my mathematics i'm, I'm more interested in the things i don't know yet the challenges of, of trying to to prove whether there's a pattern in the prime numbers or not, uh, trying to classify symmetries. You know, these are things we don't know. And they're the lifeblood of my subject, really. I mean, I love telling the stories of the things we know, but actually the exciting thing that gets me doing my work is, is the things I don't know. So, so I think we should celebrate sometimes the fact that there are still a lot of mysteries. In mathematics, for example, I think most people think that, well, surely 
don't you know everything about maths? <laughs> you know, Fermat's last theorem. I think many people thought, oh, that's the last theorem. We've yeah. done maths. You know, <laughs> So partly, actually, my first popular maths book was called The Music of the Primes. And it was actually to try and tell people, no, there's, there's actually a great mystery out there about simple numbers that even primary school learn about, these indivisible numbers. I've got a few up there, three, five, and seven, you can see. Yet we don't really understand these numbers at all. And, and I think it's really important for scientists to kind of celebrate and also inform the public about things we don't know. You know I think that's really important in the sense of trying to cope with our current pandemic situation, that there are a lot of unknowns in there. And and there are some knowns, and the more data we get, the more knowns we have. But we need to sort of educate the public that science isn't about complete knowledge. It's very often about very incomplete knowledge and understanding what is possible within that kind of domain of incomplete knowledge. Yes, well, it's, it's absolutely fascinating because the concept of, of discovery, literally physical exploring, is about going to new places that theoretically nobody's seen. Often it was well known by the local population, but not necessarily known by the explorer's population. And space travel and you know is is about going to places we've never been before. And and I think of knowledge as that way. I, I think it would be an awful world if we ever got to the stage of of actually knowing everything. I, I don't think you can ever conceive of that. I think that's an infinity that it isn't possible. There is always going to be something to know. But that in itself is an interesting idea. Yeah. You know, what what are the limits of knowledge? Are the oh. Are there kind of limits to computational power? I think there are theoretical because it's to do with energy as well. But yes, does that limit uh, theoretical think, knowledge then? It's so interesting. You're almost plugging uh, <laughs> two books ago because I wrote a book called What We Cannot Know, which um, ah. I thought was a kind of interesting exploration about whether science can reflect on itself and mm. understand uh, the things that it will never know. I mean, I, I agree there are certain issues of uh, computational complexity or or you know, what our human brains can actually navigate. There are obviously limits to that. But uh, I was almost interested in problems that even if you had infinite computational power, still the challenge would be outside of your ability to know. Uh, And actually, you already mentioned one of the things which causes an unknown, which is infinity. So you talked about exploration of our uh, universe. Well, there's a really big question out there, which is, is our universe infinite or is it finite? Um, Mm. And if it's infinite, that is likely to be something we would never be able to know because we already have a kind of limitation on what we can see of the universe, given that light travels at a finite speed, information travels at a finite speed. The universe has been going for 13.8 billion years. That actually creates a, a bubble around us called the cosmic horizon beyond which we cannot get any information so if the universe is infinite beyond there well we're only ever going to have information about a a finite piece of it and okay that should be growing over time because more and more information comes in but because the expansion of the universe is accelerating it's actually pushing things over the horizon faster than the information coming in so we're actually losing information Isn't that extraordinary? We are actually losing information, so much so that there will become a time, we know at the moment there are other galaxies out there like our own, and that's helped us to understand this expansion and acceleration of the expansion. But there'll be a point when all the other galaxies except our own have been pushed over that cosmic horizon. And if we 
actually evolved as a species at that point, we would look out and see nothing other than our own galaxy and just think that there's oh. nothing but a void. Uh, and we wouldn't know about it. We wouldn't have anything to measure the accelerating expansion of the universe. So it's absolutely extraordinary. We're, we're in a very unique moment in cosmic well, that's interesting. history to be able to know. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So there could be something that was out there that a few billion years ago we would have had knowledge of and would have changed our fundamental understanding of the universe, but now it's disappeared behind that horizon yeah. and we will never encounter it. Yeah, I find that mind-blowing. Yes, uh, a clear physical limit to knowledge then. Yeah, uh, exactly, yeah. But then there are other interesting uh, limits to knowledge, which are the fact that you're stuck inside a system. Um, that often sort of limits what you can know about the system if you're stuck inside it. So, for example, are there other universes? Well, that will be very difficult for us to tell because we're stuck in our universe um, and, and unless they, there's some kind of interaction. But I think... The classic example is our own consciousness. The challenge of, you know, the hard problem of consciousness, one of the big scientific challenges is, you know, going back to Descartes, you know, I think therefore I am. It's about the only thing I'm sure about is my own consciousness, but actually about anybody else's consciousness. Because I'm stuck within my own consciousness, I can only sort of guess that, you know, I'm talking to you now, Jason, uh, <laughs> maybe you're a little avatar uh, that you've constructed in order to be able to do so many things that you do. I mean, but, you know, we kind of assume that our fellow humans around us are conscious like we are, and they're not zombies without any world inside. But, you know, there is a challenge from philosophy and science that we will never be able to truly know whether that consciousness is there or whether it's anything like ours. And that's very relevant Last book was about artificial intelligence um, and about whether AI can be creative. It was called the creativity code. And I think that's a really interesting challenge. Okay, we assume that we fellow humans are conscious. There's a real question about other animals, whether they have the same level of consciousness. And I know a lot of people now won't eat octopus because of the discoveries about the kind of sentient being that octopus is. But when it comes to artificial intelligence, I don't think my phone at the moment is conscious, but it's certainly getting quite complex in its behavior. But I think there will come a point when we'll be really challenged with the AI that we're producing It is actually seems to be mimicking. And at what point do we actually say, no, that there's genuinely something going on inside there? Uh, and, and so I think that, you know, the hard problem of consciousness isn't just some esoteric, philosophical, scientific challenge. It, 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 it's something that we're going to have to face, probably not for the next few decades, but I would say in 50 years time, the AI that we'll be creating or 
it will be creating probably because what we're currently doing is letting the AI create itself with, through machine learning. Actually, you, we might be faced with a challenge of trying to answer this problem of consciousness. And I think that's a similar one to being stuck inside a system that it, mm. it's hard for us to pull out and understand, well, how do I know whether you're conscious or not? Well, that's obviously an area that's heavily explored by science fiction. You know, so the creativity, we, we talked a little about artists sort of simplifying or kind of focusing down on. And it's fascinating that science fiction, another one of my areas of passion, has frequently explored in lots of different ways the concept of autonomy of AI, of robots having their own rights and whether we will recognize them or whether we will treat them like, you know, subhumans. And that obviously reflects on our own society in all sorts of different ways. And it's going to be fascinating. But the, I think one of the challenges is communicating to an audience that may not be very comfortable with anything other than absolutes. And this is where some systems of thought, I'm thinking kind of religions in particular, often give information. This is what it is. This is the answer. And a lot of people find that more comforting than, than having to deal with the idea that, no, there's a lot of unknowns out there. And there's a lot of continuous what's the difference between a dog and a horse? Well, it's completely obvious, but if you go back in history far enough, it wouldn't be very obvious at all. In fact, it would look kind of doggish or kind of horseish, yeah, kind of bit of both or neither. And at what stage in history, if you could then fast forward history in my particular area in, in, in evolutionary history, at what stage would everybody say that's definitely a dog or that's definitely a horse? And and I've tried to explain this to people and, and um, you, I'm sure you've, got there well ahead of me, but the idea that one colour and another colour are on a spectrum yeah. and the difference between blue and red is pretty clear to most people unless they're colourblind in that particular way. But when you bring them together, it's less obvious. You get purple. Yeah, but when's blue purple and when's purple red? And yeah, well, and that's down to individual decision making. Yeah. And it's, you know, this is, again, the power of language. Actually, that's one of the other shortcuts I talk about in the book is there are many different sorts of dogs and you know, they're all named. And um, so do you have uh, a word for each individual instance of this? No, that's really inefficient and will not get us very far. So you, you clump together certain things of a similar nature and, and give them a name. And the, and the point is, you know, when does language decide, oh, no, we need two different names for this because uh, something is uh, really essentially different between these two and that's of course Wittgenstein's word games are about sort of teasing out how we arrive at common names for things and how important that is in actually sort of almost creating knowledge color is a very interesting one because I did a program for BBC about diagrams and we went and looked at Newton's diagram for uh, a prism and the way that colors get spread out when you pass light through a prism uh, interestingly the diagram was written on the back of a uh, sort of more theological text that he was working on. And it was, in fact, in my library at New College, which is where I'm at uh, now as a professor. But you can see him making some decisions about, well, am I going to put six colours in the spectrum, seven or eight? And he settles for seven. And I think, uh, you know, they're very interesting. Why did he go for seven? Because, you know, there, there are a few violet and mauve and things like this all a little bit... Uh, less clear. And, and he went for seven for kind of quite reasons which aren't scientific in a way. I mean, it, you know, seven was always a significant number culturally. You know, people would talk about their lucky number probably being seven. Um, but this goes back 
to the fact that the the number of heavenly bodies that we could see that were moving in the sky set against the stars was seven in number in, in ancient times. And so this seems to be why seven became a very important number. Again, you say, why do we have seven days in the week? That's also kind of curious. Okay, it's clear that 28 is coming from a moon cycle. So maybe you're dividing it up into four quarters of the moon and you get the seven out that way. But others have suggested, no, it's again sort of associated with these planets. So seven is kind of, um, for colours, Newton felt, no, seven is right because of this sort of ancient belief in the significance of seven. The other thing that he also noticed was we have seven notes in the scale, musical scale, when uh, you go up and when you hit the eighth note, you hit the octave. Um, So he, in fact, put initially his uh, spectrum in a circle. So he had this sense that the colours would come round and begin again and put musical notes next to them. So, And it's not every culture that has seven names for the colours. So the interesting thing is how much does that decision about naming determine what you see and how much is what you're able to see? You know, we sort of say, well, I think I've moved from one thing to another there and I want to call this a different name. And I think very often I talk about coming up with new language, a bit like going from black and white to color, that suddenly you've seen the world in black and white, and then but you see a new level of interest complexity there and you need to name it. And, and suddenly your world becomes a, a world of color because of seeing the difference between uh, certain mm. things. But it's also a challenge for science communicators and knowledge communicators to talk about this sort of continuous variation of things. I, I've had conversations, you know, What's the difference between, well, we used to term dog and a horse. You could examine any two pairs of objects and say, this is clearly X and this is clearly Y. Now, what do they have shared? What are their shared properties? And, and why do we define that as a rock and that as a leaf? Well, they're all made up of molecules and probably very similar molecules sometimes. And so why do we then define that? And human beings, it appears, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, because this is a long time ago I was studying this, um, like patterns, and we're very good at recognizing patterns, and we often over-recognize patterns. And I think this is a problem with the brain. It's almost like an error in our software. And we'll often see faces in flock wallpaper or, yeah, yeah. you know, deities in the passing of birds overhead and stuff. And, and this might be a consequence of our evolutionary history. So knowledge itself is sort of partly sort of meshed with the way we've had to grow up as creatures. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, I actually, if I want to define for somebody what a mathematician is, I very often say we're pattern searchers. It's the science of patterns. Um, And that's what we're trying to pick up in this kind of random noise around us. Uh, You know, is there some underlying pattern? That's why I say we've all evolved to be kind of mathematicians and we just don't realize it because absolutely as you say i think that those members of our species which survived were those that did suddenly see a face in the kind of mess of the green and the undergrowth because it's better to be wrong about you know okay that did happen to be just some leaves that look like a face but if i ignore that then you know this tiger might leap out and uh, i'm i'm eaten so so i think the the brain that was very sensitive to pattern uh, was the one that actually survived because even when it sees a pattern and it's wrong, that isn't going to hurt it. So I, I do think that pattern, uh, it, it gave our species an extraordinary power. And I think that relates actually to something very important because I think patterns, if you read patterns 
if you spotted a pattern and read it into the future, say a sequence of numbers, and then you, you sort of see, oh, I see what's going to happen next. That allows you actually to make some predictions about the future. So I think why mathematics has been so powerful as a tool for humanity is that it's given us the ability to make predictions because of, of spotting these patterns. And, and yeah, you're right. Sometimes we overdo it and spot patterns when they, they aren't there. But most of the time, the positive effect of spotting that pattern outweighs the few times when we, we kind of think there's a pattern and it isn't there. So I think the power of looking for patterns, which again is uh, actually one of the first shortcuts I talk about in this book, Thinking Better, that it means that you, you don't have to wait for something to happen you can actually make a prediction of what's going to happen. That gives you an incredible power to kind of read, read into the future. So, for example, even something like the Egyptians started to spot patterns in the, the way the Nile would flood. Now, that meant that once they saw those patterns starting to happen again, they would know the moment when actually, right, we mustn't plant our crops because they're just going to get lost in this next flood. So, so that gives you an extraordinary power. The other thing which I think is really interesting from what you said right at the beginning is, you know, very often you see different things. And in fact, they're kind of examples of the same thing, although they look very different. That, again, is an extremely mathematical way of looking at the world, because quite often what we understand is that, say, uh, you might be able to write down an equation. and That equation might be describing the trajectory of a ball through the air, or it might be describing um, how uh, prices vary according to uh, different market conditions. And it could often be the same equation, quadratic equation, for example, which is explaining all of these different things. So again, here's your shortcut. If you abstract and understand this kind of underlying language of algebra, for example, which is the great breakthroughs that the Arab world made during the sort of 10th century, this gives you an extremely powerful tool not to have to keep on reinventing the wheel every time it comes along. Uh, so again, it's a little bit like the diagram that you realize, actually, all of these particular cases are unimportant. There's something underlying all of them, which is the same. I only have to do the work once, and then each time I apply it to whatever setting it fits to. So you're basically talking about fitting a pattern an overlying pattern like a, an S-shaped graph or a parabola to different phenomena, because you know, it's pretty clear. I mean, we're, we're in the middle of a pandemic right now. And so we're looking at, looking at the sort of the, the waveform for the growth in the rate of people with COVID. Yeah. You can project it because you can see where that line is probably going to go. And it's probably not going to zigzag dramatically, except at a micro level. Overall, yeah. it's probably going to follow a sort of smooth curve in one direction or another, hopefully going downwards soon. You know, so in a way, pattern recognition, as you say, allows us to fortune tell. We, yeah, we can yeah. literally <laughs> say what's going totally. to happen in three days time with certain amount of confidence. And I suppose the first wise people that recognized that the, the moon was going to be full at a certain time or half at a certain time or the seasons were turning because a lot of early cultures is very much focused on the natural seasonal turning and storing grain when you can, because there's a fair chance that last year we got really hungry because we didn't store enough. This year, we'll probably get hungry if we don't store enough. Let's store some more. Yeah. Um, and those cultures were then more successful as a result of real fortune telling, if you like. But it's using data to tell the future, not the entrails of ducks or something. <laughs> Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And I think if you go to Lascaux and look at the caves there, you see sort of 
you know, the wonderful pictures of the animals running across fields and hunters and things. But actually, it's believed that down there, there's a training manual for the, the people who would come down and, and examine the walls because there's a kind of sequence of dots, very mysterious. And it's not quite clear what these dots are, but one interpretation is that they're quarters of the moon. And you see um, a kind of sequence of dots, which looks like the Pleiades. And there's a moment in the year when the Pleiades um, is at a particular point in the sky, and they believe this is the beginning of this calendar. And then uh, the 13 dots, uh, if you count them along, that gets you to a point, there's a big deer with antlers. And it's at that point in the year when um, they're rutting and they're very vulnerable to being hunted. And then there's a later part of the, the diagram with these dots, which indicates perhaps half a year later when they're pregnant and again, very vulnerable to being hunted. So, you know, somebody spotted this pattern and encoded it in these dots corresponding to the quarters of the moon, uh, the moment when the Pleiades, you know, a point in the year being able to count that. So as well as being an incredible artistic feat, um, those walls probably are our first recognition of patterns in the calendar, helping people to hunt. I love that because that's really the past is communicating to us in a slightly obscure way, but it wasn't deliberately obscured. It was, it meant everything to them and completely transparent to them. It's like, yeah, fine. I understand that entirely. We've got yeah. to reinterpret it based on our understanding of the world. And it's only if you know when seasonal hunting works. And I, I find that kind of stuff fascinating. What, what kind of information challenges do you see kind of coming up in the in the future for us? I mean, we we have a situation now where handheld device can give us access to a vast amount of human knowledge, but that sometimes those answers it gives us are not actually very accurate or are quite frankly incorrect. Yeah, I, I think one of the challenges we're facing is data overload because, you know, I think in the AI book, I had some sort of statistic about the amount of data that we recorded up to the year 2010 or something is uh, as much as was recorded in the next year of, wow. uh, of data. So, I mean, it, it, this is exponential kind of growth of data. And it's one of the reasons machine learning is being so successful, because we suddenly have a very rich digital data world for AI to kind of explore, learn, make mistakes in almost like a child. I think the digital data world was, was very simple, too simple for anything to really learn in. And suddenly we've got a complex world, which AI is really thriving on. Um, mm. But I think we humans are really being faced with a challenge of trying to navigate, well, what's important here? How much of this do I need to know? And we have tools to help us. Um, so for example, the internet is, is just extraordinarily large. How on earth do you find a website that you're interested in? Well, we've come up with this amazing piece of mathematics that was coded into the Google search algorithm uses a very esoteric bit of maths. Um, uh, something, again, I talk about in this new book, Thinking Better, that it, it involves something called eigenvalues of matrices, which when we teach our undergraduates, they will go, what, what's the point of this? It seems very abstract. Yet that tool is the one that uh, Sergey Brin and Larry Page used to be able to shortcut your way around the internet and find exactly the websites that you're interested in, which is kind of a, a little bit of magic. I mean, I think most people think there must be kind of like uh, Google gnomes in the background or elves sort of like, okay, they want to know about medieval <laughs> history. So uh, I think that's extraordinary. But one of the chapters I, which I think will be very important going forward is, you know, shortcuts to navigating huge amounts of data. And in mathematics, we've actually understood that sometimes uh, you can have a huge data set, but you only need to know a little bit of it to know incredible 
large amount of information about the data set. So my favorite one was when I was a kid, you'll probably remember this, we're kind of same age, you know, uh, the advert which said, you know, eight out of 10 cats prefer whiskers. Um, You know, we had a cat and I thought, I'll never remember anybody coming and asking our cat whether they like whiskers or not. Um, And so uh, I was kind of intrigued by, you know, what? how can they make such a claim? There are 7 million cats in the UK. How can they have got enough data to be able to make that claim? But when you start to look at the mathematics, you say, okay, well, uh, of course I can't know precisely, but I'm prepared to have a like 5% error either way. And what I would like is my data set 19 out of 20 times to represent um, the true value that's out there. If you have those two conditions, it turns out you only need to ask 250 cats what cat food they like. And you can say with that level of confidence that eight out of 10 cats like whiskers. Now, that's, I think, quite extraordinary and really powerful tool going forward. If you're inundated by data, how much of it do I need to know and how do I examine it in order to be able to, to tell you know, from a very little a lot about what's going on? So statistics, though, can be horribly manipulated. By people yeah. and I think scientific literacy or just even when somebody shows a, a graph of data checking which way round the indices are because I, yeah. ha- I have seen things flipped to make the graph look like it goes up and in fact it cat- catastrophically goes downwards and you think that must have been done deliberately because yes. you know there are traditional ways of doing it. you've got the sort of zero in the in the bottom left corner and everybody assumes that's the case unless you look and then you suddenly look. And if they're labeled, I guess they're not directly lying because no. they've given you the information if you can be bothered to look. And, that, and therein lies the way we really probably ought to educate our children in how to navigate data as well and how to navigate knowledge and how to not necessarily be cynical because cynicism can get you nowhere sometimes. You know, you can be over yes. cynical about it, but not necessarily 100% believe the things the first time they look at them you know it's sort of a it's a horrible balance actually because you yeah you say look don't necessarily believe everything everybody says but don't necessarily disbelieve everything everybody says either it's interesting because i kind of encourage this in my phd students to try and develop a character of sort of good cop bad cop in the way that you approach the world so absolutely you need to be reasonably open to new ideas and kind of have your own kind of ideas challenged Yet you also need to have the bad cop, which is questioning everything. Uh, And you don't want too much of one or the other because uh, then the balance goes. I mean, I very often find that when I collaborate with other mathematicians, that I look for somebody who perhaps we together we play that role. So one of us is very kind of over enthusiastic about the ideas that we think will work. And the other one uh, plays that kind of critical role saying, no, but haven't you tested this? What about that? So, Mm. So I think that's really important. But again, you've really hit on an important thing going forward, which is our kind of mathematical and data literacy, being able to navigate what is increasingly a a very uh, numerical world uh, to be able to to know when when somebody is pulling one over on us and when, you know, that graph, actually you've manipulated me because you put exactly as you said, that it may be accurate, but you may not have started one of the axes at zero. That's a classic yeah. one where yes. you know, big differences suddenly appear. But if you actually uh, readjust the thing, uh, a bar chart and put zero back down again, you suddenly realize this thing was a really big difference is, is very, yes. very narrow. So, and I talk about that in the diagrams chapter of uh, Thinking Better, that diagrams are great, but you have to be very careful because sometimes they can throw away really important information that, that you want to keep. Mm. Uh, so that having that ability to 
kind of read the world. And I think, you know, one of the things going forward is, you know, citizens need to have an ability to assess risk. We, we, we do it all the time. We're going to have to make a call on whether we do something or not. And very often that depends on, on sort of understanding the kind of numbers involved. But humans, you know, we haven't evolved to be able to navigate large numbers very well. So, you know, we understand the idea of sort of one to a hundred, but a thousand, 10,000, a hundred thousand, a million, a billion. You know, if I say there's a one in a million chance that um, this person in the dock, his DNA matches the DNA found at the murder scene. Uh, so a jury would go, wow, one in a million, certain that he is guilty. Mm. Okay, there are 10 million people in London. So that means that 10 people um, in London uh, have DNA which will match the DNA yeah. at the murder scene. So now you've got one of them, but there are another nine people that you could have convicted, and that just really isn't enough. But because a million just sounds like an immense amount, it almost sounds like infinite and therefore certain. So mm. uh, trying to develop people's ability to navigate large numbers. And again, you know, one of the really powerful tools that we developed to kind of shortcut these large numbers is the idea of a logarithmic scale. So, you know, if you measured earthquakes in their absolute magnitude of power, it'd just be a really unhelpful set of numbers that wouldn't really give you any sense of the relative scale of things. But by taking the logarithm, suddenly it crashes these big numbers down into numbers from basically one to 10. And we we have a much better language to be able to say, you know, it was 8.8 .8 on the Richter scale or something like that. That filter is a really powerful way to just help us tell what's going on. But the trouble is you then have to understand that one notch on the logarithmic scale yeah. is 10 in the non-logarithmic scale, in an yeah, ordinary exactly. number scale. And so something that's two notches up is 100 times bigger. Um, yeah. and, and so you've always got to have the, the ability to understand that and and interpret the logarithmic numbers and and I my maths I got to the stage where I think I think I understand logarithmic numbers a bit but I'm not totally confident with them and I imagine for many many people it, it does their head in um well look we've chatted for a long long time I'm sure we could do this for a lot longer because I think we share quite a lot of similar thoughts and possibly similar fears about data literacy and scientific literacy and what it means and what it doesn't mean Maybe we can do this again, but um, for now, was there anything you wanted to sort of leave the leave our listeners with as a, as a last thought? Well, you know, I think one of the other things we share is the importance of history. And I think one of the best ways in some sense to understand mathematics, which I think very often gets missed at school, is, is to understand its kind of historical trajectory and, and the moments mm. when we made breakthroughs about coming up with logarithms or the concept of zero. Um, these are moments in history and, and really changed uh, history quite often. And I suppose that's in this book, Thinking Better, I try to show a historical kind of narrative to, to these amazing moments that we came up with something like calculus in Newton's age, which just enabled us to understand a world in flux when before it just seemed to be something we we had to leave to kind of in the lap of the gods. Um, but suddenly these tools give us the uh, ability to kind of understand, maybe even uh, predict, maybe even to navigate our way to a, a different history. I love the idea, really, that the people that had invented zero or the people that discovered logarithms should be vastly more famous than kings or emperors or conquerors or whatever it is. But the simple fact is our history seems to talk about people who wear crowns and carry swords quite a lot. 
And it's a shame in a way, because it'd be lovely to know, I suppose we'll never know who actually invented zero, but we know roughly where it came from, it came from the Arab world, and it came from that culture, which is a wonderful gift. Well, to... interestingly, uh, I should correct you there, because it actually came from India, but the ah. Arabic world was the one that brought it via the Silk Route to Europe. So right. um, okay. and again, you know, I learned... I did a series on the history of mathematics for the BBC, and I must say I learned a lot of things about my subject that I didn't know about, including just the extraordinary mathematics that was going on in India, including the discovery of zero. And actually, we do know uh, an Indian mathematician, Brahma Gupta, who seems to be one of the first to document the kind of arithmetic of zero. Um, oh, wow. Uh, so we do know the person. That's great. And sometimes when you uncover these things, it goes back further and further and further. Uh, and that's wonderful. And again, incomplete knowledge i suppose and that's part of the challenge of history and maths and uh, yes. long may it keep going well look that was absolutely wonderful i really appreciate the chat and lovely to meet you good luck with the uh, with communicating science to, well thank you for giving me an opportunity to, to to share some of these stories uh, with you and your audience my pleasure thank you very much deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.